Jesse, how's it going? I'm having a pretty good week, and I'm having a much better week than my brother. What happened to your brother? My brother's car started acting funny, and there was a recall in effect for it, so we thought maybe that was causing the funniness. Takes a car to a dealership. Uh, today, he gets some photos and an explanation from from the mechanic there. It turns out that when it rains a lot or when there's flooding, rodents will seek out places to hide. My brother's car was infested with rats that chewed their way through a bunch of wires. And as the mechanic put it, they were starting to nest in his car. Oh, my God. So I assume that he just said, keep the car. I don't want it anymore. That's literally the next thing I was going to say is that if this was my car and the mechanic told me that, I'd be like, okay, uh, I think our next step is for you to (laughs) push it into the river. Yeah. (laughs) Burn it. I am not driving this fucking car anymore. Throw some gasoline on that. That reminds me, uh, a long time ago, my sister, when we were in college, she had an old Volvo and the car wouldn't start. And so she had it towed to a mechanic and the mechanic called her up later and he said that he opened the hood and a cat jumped out. (laughs) It's so awesome. When I when I lived in uh in in DC forever ago, it was like this row house situation where lots of tightly packed houses with these back alleyways. This nearby woman was a crazy cat lady, so she would leave out cans of food for the numerous stray cats in the area, and it was right by my car. So these cats would just climb all over my car. There were all these scratch marks on the ceiling. Uh, but that's DC for you, just cats everywhere. They sensed that you were the sort of beta male they could take advantage of. I mean, they were right. Uh, yeah, it's true. Katie, what is the name of this as-yet-not-rodent-infested podcast? This is Blocked and Reported, and I'm Katie Herzog. I'm Jesse Single, and this week uh, we are to everyone's chagrin. We're going to talk a little bit more about pedophilia, but we also have some new stuff to discuss. We do. Do you want me to tell you what the new stuff is? <laughs> you know, at some point we should take a course on like introductions and segues. I think we have some work to do. Yeah, why don't you go for it? Okay. First, we are going to talk about uh, a rea- the reaction to a recent book review that you published in the New York Times, specifically around everybody's favorite dead website, Gawker. We're also going to talk about a controversy at The Guardian involving everyone's favorite gender theorist, Judith Butler. I'd like to call her, I'm sorry, them, call them a gender evangelist. They love gender. Big fan of gender. And they hate people who hate gender, as we'll see. The anti-gender movement, which threatens us all. Indeed. Leave my gen- Katie, leave my gender alone. I'm going to a football game Sunday. Yeah, every time you go to a football game, your gender just gets reinforced, doesn't it? Yeah, you go to the gates. If you're a male, they send you to the stands. If you're female, they have you be a cheerleader. <laughs> I think if they're a male, they send you onto the field. They let you play, Uh-oh. right? Can you imagine? I would yeah, I would get no. murdered. <laughs> a lot of people would like to see Indeed. that. Okay. So uh first we're gonna so last week we had an episode on the contentious subject of pedophilia. We got a couple listener responses we'd like to respond to. You got one from a pedophile. I got one from the victim of a pedophile. What should we start with? Uh let's start with yours. Okay, so this is part of a response I got from um someone uh, a patron. And I'm not going to read the whole thing. I also want to be clear that he said when I asked him if we could read it, he said yes, but he wanted to make it clear he's not an expert. He's not a scientist. He he viewed his account as sort of anecdotal. So he had a lot of humility about it. I wanted to, to you know, uh, acknowledge that. Ugh. I'm sure this is the comment you were hoping you wouldn't get, but here goes. I think people have this idea that pedophiles are socially awkward and visibly weird people you could spot a mile away and that they could never manipulate you or charm you or make you see them as human. And that if they can do all those things, that means they could never do something terrible or awful like rape a kid and then come across as reasonable and sympathetic five minutes later. 
Of course they can do all those things because they're people. And they're also monsters because all monsters are people. The man who raped me and went on to rape the majority of my cousins was charming. People loved him. He was a, quote, rascal. And what he thrived on and could not live without was that people were too surprised and felt too awkward to interrupt his charisma as he slowly pushed in on their boundaries and say, hey, what the fuck? And he knew that if you let him intrude on those barriers even a single time, that would almost certainly be the case that you would let him do it however many times he wanted after that because you would never forgive yourself for not having said something the first time. He'd just rattle you a little bit. You wouldn't push back. And then he'd rattle you and a bit farther the next time. Um, so it goes on a little bit like this. He explains that he was five when he was victimized and uh, he likes us, but he just thinks we're going too soft on these guys. He He concludes by saying – if a guy says all he wants to do is read child erotica or have sex with a doll that looks like a kid and you had to sit there and look him in the face and not just as some text on the internet where it's all philosophical, you'd know that's bullshit too. If you had to live next to a guy and watch him walk past kids and hear him make plans to go to his family reunion where his young relatives will be or see him think through scenarios of how he's going to get away with it, the meat space terror of that, the real life terror of that adds something that reasoning about it on the internet cannot. Um, it actually goes on a little bit more, but I don't want to, I don't want to, I'll read one, uh, two more sentences. I forgave the man who raped me because I did not want my life to be motivated by hate or by shame. I forgave myself for not saying anything in time to help the others, but letting go of hate isn't the same as letting go of judgment or boundaries or punishment. So I think that last bit sums up like his the case against our argument that we're letting go of boundaries or, or punishment or judgment. Uh, what do you think about that? Well, first of all, I'm very sorry that this happened to this person. This is terrible. The population that we were talking about was specifically people who do not offend children or who do, who do not rape children. They are non-offending pedophiles. They are committed to non-offending. This is their whole thing. We're talking about two different populations here. Another thing is that according to the data that I've seen, between 60 and 75% of people who abuse children are not actually pedophiles. Was his rapist a pedophile? We don't know. Po probably, possibly, who knows? Um, but I think it's really important to distinguish between these two populations. We're talking about child offenders. In this case, he's talking about an offender. The people that we were talking about are not offenders. There's just a very clear difference there. Um, so I completely, I have a lot of sympathy for him. This is terrible. I'm glad that he's managed to get past this in his life, but he's talking about a different population here. I think what he's saying though is that, so we're, we're talking about 14 and 15 year old kids who have these attractions and, and we're taking them at their word or even older people at their word that they want to, to not hurt kids. He's saying, why are you trusting a group that's capable of this? And, um, I mean, it, here's the thing. Why would these people be in this group if they were trying to hurt children? There are, as we said on the show, there, if you want to trade kitty porn, if you want to go rape kids, there are places on the internet where you can find, you can groom people, you can trade kitty porn. This is a support group for people who specifically do not want to do that. I am taking them at their word. Of course, like we don't know what is, you know, what's ultimately in their hearts. We can't know. These are other people's experiences, but this is not the forum for people who are interested in, in, in offending. That's the whole point of the forum. And one other thing, you know, he said at the beginning of that message is that people assume that child abusers or pedophiles are awkward not charming people. I don't assume that at all. Pedophiles are, there's, I mean, the estimates are up to one in a hundred people. Like, Anybody could be a pedophile. Anybody could have this attraction. You wouldn't know it just by seeing them on the street. Yeah, I guess the question just comes down to like what what else are you supposed to do? Obviously, the sex doll thing is a whole thorny issue. Um, but in terms of like letting them talk about their attractions and and get help, I, 
it gets complicated. I guess to me, it seems like a lot of people who would eventually become sociopaths and people who hurt a lot of kids probably started from a place where they wouldn't have done that in much the same way. Like people who become not everyone who's an ISIS terrorist is a literal sociopath. Like people can be really influenced by their environments and by senses of shame and sort of like, I don't know. There's all it's human messiness. So I guess I just don't see a better solution on the basic front of like, should these guys have a place to talk about this? And I think that can be true, but it's also true that I feel horrible for, for the victims in much the same way I feel horrible for the victims of a terrorist attack. But I still think we should have de-radicalization programs. Sure. It's just once again to point out these people don't have victims, or at least they say they don't have victims. They say they don't. Yeah. I do think a big, a big divide here is like how much you can, Trust them. And, and I think I'm with you that on balance, if someone comes forward and says, I want help, I don't want to hurt anyone. Uh, if they really wanted to hurt people, that doesn't seem like the most efficient way to go about that. Okay. So here's a message that I got from, um, one of the pedophiles. And this is specifically a pedophile who I referred to in the last show. This was a guy who was in the military. He sought counsel, uh, with a therapist, um, after he was diagnosed with PTSD after a terrible deployment and, um, he was put in military prison. So here's what he said. I don't li- usually listen to the blocked and reported podcast, but a friend in the group said that you mentioned the story. So I listened to it. Thank you so much for telling it. I am terribly afraid of my identity being compromised because I'm a identifying uh, information and it could really hurt my family. My partner is supportive, but neither of us know what would happen if, if this got out. But it meant so much to hear someone say it, say it with compassion. I cried a little bit. I have so many mixed feelings. It is hard to parse them sometimes. So he was thrown in jail just for coming forward and saying he had this attraction, even though he hadn't hurt anybody. It, he hadn't hurt anybody. It was the story was a little bit more complicated than that, but um, but that's the basic gist of it. Yeah, yeah, that's very sad. Um. Anyway, yeah, we obviously, we got, I didn't, I didn't think we got sort of the wave of outrage I was maybe expecting with this one. At least my feed didn't show. We definitely got some upset people, which is natural. It's, it's a really difficult subject. Uh, I mean, I imagine they're upset because we defended Noah Berlatsky. Right, exactly. <laughs> I was I'm victimized. upset by that too. I was victimized by Noah Berlatsky. <laughs> you know, Alice Drager, a friend of the pod, Alice Drager pointed this out on Twitter today. She says that, you know, we, or I think maybe you more specifically said like, yeah, no, it's not a pedophile. And Alice pointed out, we actually don't know this because you can't tell just by looking at people. And she's right about that. Any of us could be pedophiles, including you. She said she, what was her point that we did? We said, no, is not a pedophile. Right. <laughs> I mean, he yes, could be. anyone could be. I mean, right. How can I prove that you're not three toddlers in a trench coat? <laughs> it would explain a lot, Katie. <laughs> It's not a trench coat. It's a maxi dress. Uh, anything else on pedophiles or should we move on to this week's fun events? No, I don't think so. As always, thanks everyone for your feedback. Yep. Yeah. And remember, if you send us negative feedback, we will dox you. <laughs> we will send Noah Berlaski to your house. We will send him your takes and he will horribly abuse them. He'll write an ebook about you. Hey, uh, okay. So earlier this week, I had a book review in the New York Times of Helen Congratulations. Joyce's- Thank you. Thank you. It was, um, it was fun writing. It was, it was a challenge because it was Helen Joyce's book, Trans, When Ideology Meets, uh, Reality. So Joyce's book was a, it's a critique of self-ID, which is the idea of that you say you're a man, you are a man. If you say you're a woman, you are a woman. If you say you're non-binary, you're neither male nor female. Uh, this has 
a lot of ramifications for society. It's a big, messy debate. I, for WeSpa. For WeSpa, yes. Uh, if you're a patron, you know that we have talked about the WeSpa debate, which involved a male sex offender in a locker room uh, causing a whole blow up. That sounds like a hoax, Jesse. Yeah, exactly. Um, so – fraught subject Helen Joyce I, I do not think she's a transphobe she's in favor of like the UK system which balances protections for trans people with protections for female people and there's certain places you can legally have uh single sex spaces in the US the situation is very complicated it varies a huge amount from state to state uh California has some of the most liberal laws on this uh so yeah I wrote a book review and um I don't know. I, the the experience of writing the review was great. They're very rigorous. They really had me fact check everything carefully. Uh, I was happy with how the review came out. And I, we, you and I like are a little bit uh, have a little bit of disagreement about how much focus we should give to the negative response to the review because we knew there was going to be some, right? Yeah, for sure. I want to give a uh, give air to it because first of all, I think it's funny, but also I think that it shows a lot of the ideology that has infiltrated media in particular. Yeah. I mean, well, okay. So, so what, what aspects of the response do you want to talk about? And then maybe I can give the case for like why some of this could be ignored. Well, first of all, I want to give a compliment to the New York times for commissioning this book review because this was guaranteed to cause a shitstorm, and they did it anyway. And there's, you know, we, we shit on the New York times quite a bit. And after, for instance, um, What's his name? The former opinion age editor, um, not Goldberg. What's his name? Jeff, uh, James Bennett. Yeah. After James Bennett stepped down, my fear was that the opinion page was going to become even more sort of, uh, homogenous in its, in its, uh, in its opinions than it has been. This, your review wasn't in the opinion page, but that has not actually proven to be true. They hired John McWhorter to do a newsletter. Robbie Suave has a piece in it today. Um, I think they've actually done a pretty good job of diversifying their coverage over the past year or so. So first of all, like compliments to the New York Times. The fact that they commissioned you to do this shows some, some like real balls. Um, but the response to the review. So there's a lot, of course, there's always going to be a lot of pushback when you in particular write on trans issues. And I guess the most telling response came from. Gawker. Do you remember Gawker, Jesse? You know, it, it sounds familiar. It's like some 90s. No, remind me. <laughs> yeah. Gawker was recently relaunched, correct? Yeah. So Ben Smith uh, recently wrote in the New York Times about the relaunch of Gawker, or as I like to call it, Gawker Lite. So for people who don't remember Gawker, and I'm talking specifically to my mom here. Hi, mom. Gawker was a, a 2000s era website that covered media, celebrity gossip, New York's hipper boroughs, and uh, oftentimes gay men who didn't want to be outed. Gawker was very snarky. It was mean. It was iconoclastic. And they basically gave no fucks about anything. Um, they also like the word I was just rereading um, a piece by Max Reed, a former colleague of mine and my editor, one of my editors at New York Magazine, pointing out that they would do things like post, uh, in one case, a basically passed out college girl. Oh, God. Someone having sex with her, effectively, pretty close to rape, as she asked him not to. This was Deadspin, but Deadspin was under the Gawker umbrella. And AJ Delario, who is the, the, cause of a lot of this he just posted it and and refused to take it down so they were back in the day they did some really bad shit and i think people often 
whitewash certain aspects of the Gawker legacy. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of nostalgia about this site. So they broke a few sort of big stories, but these weren't really important stories. Like the, the one that, that consistently comes up is that they broke the story of former Toronto mayor uh, Rob Ford smoking crack. And what they tried to do was they raised $200,000 to buy a video that somebody had of Rob Ford smoking crack. Um they another story they broke was Josh Duger, the real the like family friendly reality TV star, had an account on Ashley Madison, which was a website for finding people to cheat on your spouse with. That it turned out was populated almost entirely by men. Um, so stuff like that. This is not the fucking Pentagon Papers. They had a, a feature called Gawker Stalker where they would post the locations of celebrities around New York. So Ben Smith of the New York Times wrote a piece this week called "Is Gaw- If Gawker is Nice, Is It Still Gawker? And in it, he described old Gawker this way. He wrote, It evolved with the internet, moving from a kind of gleeful nihilism to a brand of self-righteous left-wing politics, breaking some news and shaping online discourse along the way. And I think that's very true. Gawker had an immense uh, impact on sort of the, the the tone of digital media to come. So as most people probably know, Gawker was – Hey, should we just say a word about like what that tone was for folks unfamiliar with that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because so, uh, I, I think it's basically just snark and, and yeah. being very uh, judgmental and, and uh, the, the kernel of usefulness there I think is skepticism of authority and of puffed up figures who – mistreat people and 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 are corrupt and stuff like that so some of the targets were justified but it curdled into something very sort of reactionary and in my view like ugly bullying i don't think it's bullying when they go after me because i'm like a journalist but like in some cases they would bully people with like no platform you're talking about like posting videos of like random college students singing along with the n-word at a concert it's just gotten so bad yeah yeah so we have gawker to thank in part for that um, so Gawker was killed in 2016 after billionaire Peter Thiel, who Gawker had outed, bankrolled a lawsuit on behalf of professional wrestler Hulk Hogan after Gawker published a sex tape in which Hulk Hogan was fucking his best friend, Baba Lo- the Love Sponge's wife. That's such a good sentence. <laughs> so a court ordered Gawker to pay $140 million. But Bubba the Lo- just to be clear, Bubba the Love Sponge is like – in the cuck. video, popping in to check in on this. Well, he's not even a cuck because he's not watching. He's just like popping in, right? To be like, no, know. I think he like got off on it. This was his thing, a oh, cuck, like okay. a, like an actual cuckold who like gets off on your wife fucking somebody else. Oh, okay. Sorry, go ahead. Okay, so uh, so Gawker uh, was ordered to pay 140 million dollars, and they went bankrupt, and that was the end of that until now. So. A couple years ago, Gawker was bought at auction for something like $1.4 million by a guy named, uh, Brian Goldberg. And Goldberg, it's funny that he bought, that he bought Gawker because Goldberg was basically a punching bag, a Gawker punching bag. This is Ben Smith in the New York Times describing how Gawker treated, uh, the new boss. He writes, in a series of casually cruel posts, the site's writers called Goldberg an asinine media mastermind, a self-serving misogynist, a clueless scamp, and the intellectual equivalent of a large wet sponge. There was so much Brian Goldberg content on Gawker that the editors rounded it up in a greatest hits post under the headline, The Relentless and Well-Deserved Mockery of Brian Goldberg. So Brian Goldberg bought the website. And then he relaunched it in 2018 with a really small staff. There were like two writers and an editor, and that was a complete failure. Um, the woman that he hired to be the managing editor, Carson Griffiths, was uh, too problematic for Gawker 2.0. So this is from the Daily Beast. This is describing um, describing 
Gar- Carson Griffith's crimes. In a Slack message reviewed by the Daily Beast, Griffith seems to, seemed to brag to Gawker's staff that she had gotten them out of a company-wide diversity training session, although ne- neither Kosoff nor Breslau, those are the writers, had asked her to do so. The two ended up attending. During one of Breslau, again, that's the writer, uh, interviews for the job, Griffiths mentioned the snack selection at the office and noted that she had a snack saved in her pocket. That's so poor person of me, she joked. Kosoff, that's again, a writer, additionally told HR of an exchange in which Griffith took a dismissive stance towards r- the recruiting of a writer who identifies as non-binary. So she was problematic, which is hilarious that she was too problematic for Gawker of all places because the two writers quit in protest. Yeah, we should. I'm looking at this Daily Beast piece. Um, it, it looks like at one point Griffith said, LOL is name redacted a girl referring to a uh, non-binary person of color. They mentioned the race, of course, who non-binary person who uses they, them pronouns. So I guess there was at least one accusation that she made fun of one particular person saying, LOL, are they a girl, which obviously in the present media climate uh, <laughs> is going to get you in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. She also apparently made some dick jokes. Okay, so the two writers quit after just two weeks, so Gawker 2.0 was dead. And then this year, Gawker 3.0 came online when Brian Goldberg hired a former Gawker writer named Lee Finnegan to run the site. And so Ben Smith's piece in the New York Times is about this new era, which, according to Lee Finnegan, isn't going to be like the old Gawker because it's- Are you saying, are you saying Lee or Leah? What is it? Is it Leah? It's Leah. Okay. Yeah. Which, oh, well, sorry for, uh, for dead naming you, Leah. <laughs> so, which according to Leah Finnegan is not going to be like the old Gawker because this Gawker is going to be nice. Uh, this is what Ben Smith wrote. She, and this is Finnegan, sent her, sent her staff guidelines under the heading Gawker Religious Text, which is, which offer a pretty predictable set of targets. The category of people we can make fun of includes the obvious targets, celebrities, royals and politicians, New York Times, as well as left-wing Twitter bugaboos, Glenn Greenwald and Thomas Chatterton Williams. To get a sense of Gawker shifts, I asked Ms. Finnegan if she would have published a list of anonymous allegations against media men that became public in 2017. And that is the uh, shitty media men list. Um, she says she would have then, and now she wouldn't. So that's the new Gawker. And I'm, I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear that Gawker, that Leah Finnegan says that Gawker wouldn't have published this list. I kind of don't believe her, but this is what she says. Can I just say it's weird, like, to send out a list, like, here are the, the people, our community. Yeah. Dislikes enough. And Thomas, Thomas fucking, Chatton yeah. Williams and Glenn Greenwald, so we can make fun. It's just, it, it points to something very predictable that not a lot of people will be interested in. And she probably should have put on that list Jesse Single because new nicer gawker published the following headline after your book review. Bigot reviews bigot book for New York Times book review. How'd that make you feel, Jesse? I mean, if I'm being honest, this, it was so, Dumb and it felt so perfunctory where like, so in the past, Gawker's gone after me and you have to admit the Jezebel headline, what's Jesse Singles fucking deal has a certain pop to it. Like I thought that was a ridiculous article. It, it genuinely, in my view, lied about the content of my article on, on what. Why don't you, why don't you, I think you need to get a little more background on that. All right. So this was after my, I, I had a cover story in the Atlantic in 2018 about detransitioners and youth gender you transition. Yeah. It's never come up before. And, um, Jezebel ran a piece. What's Jesse Singles fucking deal? If you read it closely, you'll see there aren't really any specific claims about what's in the article that's wrong or, or, or bigoted. Uh, the only real accusation, if memory serves, is that I'm against informed consent. Informed consent is the idea that if you're an adult, uh, and you seek trans healthcare, like hormones or surgery, you should have final say on whether you get it. Now, 
you know, I could see some problems with this. Carrie Callahan, a detransitioner, has has argued that there's some downsides. But I'm not only am I in favor of it, but in the article Jezebel was criticizing, I said so. I I presented it as an important advance in trans healthcare. So from my point of view, they they just are sort of making up. They're reversing my opinion 180. Now. What's Jesse Zingle's fucking deal is an undeniably good headline. I still laugh at it, even though I – And it's a good question. And it's a good question. This latest one, it it just felt like these guys who aren't – a lot of people write for these sites who don't really – I don't know how to not sound obnoxious here. They don't really do anything but like talk shit about others. They don't – that's like their whole MO is to ridicule others and reduce them to straw men. And – I didn't, this article didn't make me mad. It didn't really engender any response in me because it just, it really felt perfunctory. It felt like they like weren't putting any effort in. I also couldn't imagine anyone who didn't already have strong feelings about me responding to it. It was just, it was, it was clearly in much the same way Leah Finnegan is like encouraging her staffers to bash Glenn Greenwald and Thomas Chatterton Williams, who are folks who, who only a very small group of like Media types have strong feelings about it. it. Just it just felt like that. It was sort of a, a a mosquito. Like it was nothing. I don't know. Did you were you that offended by it on my behalf? Oh, I was amused by it. L- let me read you my favorite part. Single calls Joyce. That's Helen Joyce. No conservative hardliner, but that's like me saying my dog Mars is no big loser when he is actually my only friend and ally. But that's the other thing. Like it didn't even make sense. sense. Like that sentence doesn't make sense at a sentence level. So the the Leah Finnegan's editing isn't even making sure that they can produce coherent sentences. There were also a bunch of typos in this. But if you're if me saying that's like me saying my dog Mars is no big loser when he is actually my only friend and ally. Your dog's not the loser. You're the loser. No, you're the loser. You can't even – it's like a lack of subject whatever. If I knew grammar, I could describe what was wrong with that sentence, but I don't. And this piece is by someone named Claire Car- um, who I looked up on Twitter and she has like – 900 followers, which doesn't matter, but what I'm saying here is that Gawker, which like made a big deal about hiring basically all women and not, I think there's one man on the staff, but the rest are the staff of like a dozen people. It's all women and non-binary people. I would love to know what the actual sex breakdown is. Um, but, uh, so th- this is not like they have not poached top tier talent. Um, and then another thing about it is the, just the, the website is it's so terrible. Broken. It's like it's I could so design broken. a better website. It's crazy. It, re- it really looks like they made their writers do the coding because they couldn't <laughs> afford to hire any actual designers. It is so bad. Come There's, on, if Brian you go to the, Goldberg. Invest. Yeah. Invest. If you go to the site, the page that uh, this – Bigot Reviews, Bigot for NYT book, book Review. There's a picture of a toilet that covers up the lo- like half of the logo – it just it, the whole, you have to kind of see it to believe how bad the design on this website is. And I don't want to be elitist. There are websites that get no readers who deserve readers, and there there are websites that get a lot of readers that don't deserve them. But it just this is like they're trying to resuscitate a dead property, and they're they're doing the same shit they've always done that made a lot of people hate them rightfully. And frankly. One of the things I found most liberating about like this podcast working out and my newsletter working out is like there's just no conceivable reason other than like reptile brain habit for me to care what these people think. All they do is screech on Twitter and write dumb blog posts. I they when was the last time someone in this sort of the Gawker expanded universe wrote something where you're like, wow, that's making me think about this differently. Well, I did see they have a review of Cool Ranch Doritos on the site today. Oh, well, I'll check that out after we get off for yeah. sure. 
Um, okay, so there's the, the Gawker response was predictably stupid uh, to your piece. Um, and as other people, I think maybe Max Reed have pointed out, you don't really need Gawker anymore when Twitter is Gawker. Um, the attitude has really <laughs> yeah. shifted over to social media, and there's really no reason to like read these stupid takes. And it does not seem like they're trapped. I, I cannot imagine that they're getting much traffic. Um, but there were other responses to uh, to your book review that I that I wanted to point out. Okay, so here's one by someone named Brittany De La Critaz. Critaz, Critaz. Uh, she's apparently, or excuse me, they are apparently a sports writer. Um, they write on sports, gender, and queerness, natural allies. Brittany says, I believe, and then she tags Pamela Paul, who's the editor of the New York Times book review. Pamela Paul and whoever was responsible for editing and assigning this review needs to answer for it. It's violent. As a trans author, author I'm dev- devastated to see the paper record run this anti-trans concern trolling propaganda under the guise of a neutral review. Jesse, your book review is violent. Like, how many paper cuts did people get from your book review? <laughs> yeah, I guess. I mean, I guess all I can say is I I don't see how a um book review is violent i guess the book review would be violent if you like called for people to be hurt or injured i don't view the debate over exactly what uh how much self-id should be embraced to be violent and i think this tick and it is a tick and it's not just a trans rights fight it's like a lot of of left-wing politics now of accusing anyone who disagrees with you as causing violence i don't think it's sustainable and i think there's a boy who cried wolf thing or or girl or whatever who cried wolf thing where like in 2021 editors and decision makers at, at newspapers and magazines are going to respond to this a lot less than they did a few years ago because it's just sort of a tired, endless shrieking on Twitter. And again, I'm not just saying this one group of activists. I'm saying like on any hot button subject across the political spectrum, it's just endless shrieking. And you can't, there's only so many times like people are at, you can, accuse people of trying to kill other people before people are going to tune you out. Brittany continues, I feel so much despair, anger, grief about this in a way I didn't expect. I'm devastated about what the future means for us and how we come back from this political and cultural moment. We are not hypothetical thought experiments. We are people and mainstream media is causing us so much harm. So there's this idea that Brittany, I think, is is perpetuating that the New York Times is transphobic. Do you think the New York Times is transphobic, Jesse? I do not. Anything else to say on that? <laughs> I mean, I, I just, I just, if you look at, um, they've run a lot of articles about turfs. They have not, to my mind, run a single story about youth transition that, that just includes like the basic thoughts I've gotten from mainstream clinicians. Uh, they wrote, they ran, in my view, I don't want to make this about me, but like a column by Andrea Long Chu that straightforwardly misrepresented my position. Like I, I don't, I just don't see how anyone could possibly argue the Times has been transphobic. But, you know, people are allowed to disagree. Okay, so another response was by someone named Sarah Kelly, who is an editor at Sports Illustrated. She says, Editors have a basic responsibility to continue to consider and protect the vulnerable and marginalized people involved in a given piece. To allow Single to review this book is wildly unethical and just plain shitty. Do you think that's what an editor's uh, obligation is, Jesse? No. And I also think there's tremendous disagreement about what, what's entailed by protecting marginalized people. Even if an editor said, my job as a book editor is to protect marginalized people, 
which would be very fraught because everyone disagrees. Uh, yeah, no, I just, I just, this comes down to like very different ideas about what journalism is supposed to be. And I think that's a recurring theme on this podcast is that we're slightly more old school and there's a group trying to push journalism toward moral clarity or whatever you want to call it. The idea that a book reviewer's job is to not to like, you know, publish a variety of book reviews that reflect public opinion, say, but to actively push one particular view. I just think that's false. Especially, I mean, there are activist outlets within New York Times that theory is not an activist outlet or it shouldn't be an activist outlet. If this were in like trans quarterly. Even just for self-interested reasons, if the Times adopts that view, that would be very bad for the Times. Um, and, and there's some argument that outlets like the Times have gone in that direction and, and, I mean, it's complicated, but yeah, I think this is just a matter of like me and Sarah Kelly disagreeing about what, um, writing, <laughs> writing is. I don't know. Well, Sarah Kelly also apparently thinks that you are somehow responsible for the deaths of trans women because she then tweeted, at least 35 trans people have been murdered this year. The way we as journalists cover trans people has real and deadly consequences. This is not about hypotheticals or culture wars or hurt feelings. It's life and death. And with that, she linked to the Human Rights Campaign's annual uh, annual rundown on trans murders. This one is entitled Fatal Violence Against the Transgender and Gender Nonconforming Community in 2021. And this is really why I wanted to talk about this because we've discussed this about we've discussed this on the podcast before, but I think it's it's worth mentioning again. This idea that the 35 trans people who have been killed in 2021, thus far in 2021, is an epidemic. It's not. This does not, if you look at statistics, if you compare the rates of trans people who are murdered versus the general population, what you find is that the murder rates of trans people are no higher. In some populations, they're much lower, like white trans men, very low murder rates. There are some subpopulations that are basically, uh, like, for instance, black and Latina sex workers have higher murder rates. They're basically on par with black men. Um, so in these like small subpopulations, definitely more likely to be victimized. It's especially if you're like a black trans sex worker, black trans woman who's a sex worker. Yeah. You absolutely are in a dangerous situation and it's horrifically tragic when they get killed or when they get injured. It's horrible. And it suggests a failure on the part of society. That's a different question from whether there's an epidemic of people being murdered because they are trans. Right. And so HRC publishes this every year. And then every year, journalists and allies take this, take this, this, what is generally a small population and they spin it so that it looks as though all of these people are the victims of hate crimes. And it's just not true. So you can it, just like, if you just even Google a few of the names on the list, like, uh, here's from last year. Tony McDade, he was killed by – this is a trans guy in Florida. He was killed by police after he stabbed someone to death and then pulled a gun on the police officers. This is also last year. A trans woman named Lexi was killed by another trans woman over a fight about a wig. Uh, also in 2020, this was in Seattle, a non-binary trans person, a female, was hit by a car during a protest on a freeway in Seattle. This is this year. Uh, a trans guy and his non-binary sibling were killed by their insane mother because she wanted to prevent her ex-husband from getting custody. All of these are tragic. They are not hate crimes. And people like Sarah and HRC and other allies and activists and journalists who perpetuate this idea that there is a rash of hate crime killings of trans people are lying. They are misrepresenting the truth. And we, we need better data on this for sure, but there is no evidence that there are like serial killers going out and victimizing trans people. 
Yeah, I mean, so imagine a situation where there literally was a serial killer and he was killing trans women in some city and journalists wouldn't talk about that. That would be very unethical because you wouldn't be giving people information they need and deserve. But on the other hand, if there's not such an epidemic going on and you repeat over and over there is, you are also doing harm. You are making people scared of shit. I, I, there are, it's obviously the case. Trans people, especially trans people in certain situations, face many day-to-day challenges we who are not trans do not, in many cases. For sure. But, but they're not, you, you do not face a high risk of being murdered just for like walking around like by, while trans, this is the same as the other thing we keep cycling back to, which is the difference between fully contextualized data on police shootings and the narratives that emerge. The, the fully contextualized data shows that police shootings of unarmed people are rare. That doesn't mean it's always justified when they are armed, but it does mean that statistically you're not in all likelihood at like the, the level of probability of being killed by lightning. You're not going to be killed by a, a police officer just for walking around while being the wrong race. That doesn't happen that much. Right. And, and the fact that allies and activists and journalists continue to perpetuate this, even though it actually does harm to the very populations they are supposedly trying to protect, it tells people, you are in danger. Your life is in danger. You need to be cautious. Every time you leave your house, you are in danger. This is deeply, deeply fucked up. You cannot pretend to want to protect these people and then spread this narrative that they are going to be victimized every time they leave their house. Are trans people more likely to be harassed? I would assume so. Are they more likely to be murdered? The data that we have is that outside of very narrow populations, specifically black and Latina sex workers, it's just you're not at higher risk. So you shouldn't let that infect your life. And so these people are really misrepresenting the truth. And another thing that HRC does, so they don't report, they generally don't report on uh, on who the perpetrators are of these crimes. So they'll, they'll say like, they always say the race because that is, of course, incredibly important. Um, so they'll say the race of the person, the gender of the person. And, and another thing is they also lump gender nonconforming people into this category of trans murders. They don't report on generally on who the killers are. But if you go and you see who is actually murdering trans people, basically they're murdered for the same reason as anybody else's. Drugs, sex work, domestic violence, random bad luck. And oftentimes the people who are killing them are, and I'm like kind of scared to say this, it's black and Latina men. These are not people who are like reading, these are like These are oftentimes it's their lovers who are afraid of being exposed. It's a homophobic hate crime. Well, I guess transphobic technically, right? Although they might view them. Well, so, okay. So I talked to, I talked to a trans woman about this, a woman who I won't mention her name because I don't want to blow up her spot. But I tra- I talked to a woman who she's in her 60s. She's been an activist for trans people for fucking decades. She ran a trans rights organization. And I asked her, do you think this is homophobia or do you think it's transphobia? And she told me it was homophobia because she was involved in focus groups a while ago that asked people this question. What is the motivation for these crimes? And it was oftentimes a deep-seated fear of being exposed as gay. Because, because from the point of view of people in their community, it's, they didn't have sex with a woman. They had sex with like a man in the exactly. way. I'm not endorsing that viewpoint, but that's how they thought they would be perceived. Exactly. Okay. It's, a, it's, it's very fucked up. You can't solve these problems if you, if you misrepresent where they come from. Um, I also, it's, there's sort of a, a parallel between like in the, in the conversation about sort of anti-Asian hate crimes, lumping everyone from this giant, 
heterogeneous group together with like trans people have such different experiences. If you're yeah. a suburban trans woman who passes, who just goes about your day to day life as a woman, you likely face a very low risk level. Or a, or a trans man. Yeah. Yeah. And, and again, like you have a white passing trans man. Right. It's just, it's not, I wish it absolutely talk about violence against sex workers. And I think there's often ways to improve, uh, life for safe sex workers to make them safer. And sometimes our federal government, the same people fucking talk about how, how pro trans they are, do the opposite of that. SESTA FOSS is a whole thing. But, um, uh, yeah, it, I just think this conversation is very silly. Anyway, anything, anything else on this? No, <laughs> I would like to say that we probably won't revisit the subject again, but we both know that's a lie. Uh, isn't our next, our next segment about this very subject? <laughs> well, tra- gender identity stuff. Indeed. We cannot fucking get away from this. I guess just as a final word, like I, I, um, there, there's going to be some pissed off responses and I wish people were more measured about this, but I really, I, I like writing the review and I was pleased it was, uh, you know, assigned to me and I, I think I did a good job reviewing the book and people can disagree. I just think, um, people should look, we'll include a link in the show notes. The polling on self-ID suggests that the version of self-ID some activists are pushing where like as soon as I say I'm a woman, I'm treated as a woman in every sense. That's really, really unpopular. Like if you ask people, should trans people be able to live according to their identity? They say yes. Should they have access to hormones and surgery? Yes. Although I think with the, with kids, the, or teens, the polling is a little different. But if you ask them like, should, uh, a male person who has had no medical procedures be allowed to use the women's facilities? Approval drops a lot and it could be 10 or 20 years from now that, that will have been the baddies and it'll be crazy. Anyone ever denied how brilliant self ID was. It could also be that like the solution, uh, Western industrialized clubs to involve some degree of compromise, like what they have in the UK. So I just, people should, should really look at this polling because I think on Twitter, you would imagine or in liberal journalism spaces, you would think everyone agrees completely about self-ID and the fact that there's a lot of disagreement about it, even among liberals and even in liberal countries, you know, suggests that, that if you're in favor of self-ID, you have some convincing to do and you should persuade rather than freak out at anyone who disagrees with you because your position is a minority position. All right. Uh, we will be back after this with some important Judith Butler news. Jesse, as a committed gamer, I know you've probably never been to a grocery store before, but on my last visit to my local grocer, I saw the following sign in the toilet paper aisle. Due to current shortages, toilet paper purchases are limited to one pack per customer. I almost had a panic attack, but then I remembered that I don't even need toilet paper because my toilet is outfitted with a Hello Tushy modern bidet attachment. I almost took my shirt off and started dancing in the toilet paper aisle, but last time I did that, I got arrested. The Hello Tushy modern bidet attachment cuts down on TP and is the perfect solution for toilet paper shortages or just a dirty butt that's because the hello tushy modern bidet attachment washes away even the messiest of dumps <laughs> leaving you with a better clean than toilet paper jesse thank you for reading that line i mean you told me you would demote me to associate producer if i didn't so i had to stop wiping and start washing your ass with a hello tushy bidet for a better cleaner butt go to hellotushy.com slash bar to get 10 percent off plus free shipping this is a special offer for our listeners at hellotushy.com slash bar for 10 percent off after you buy and install your tushy show it off tag us and at hello tushy on instagram we actually don't have an instagram but we're contractually obligated to read that line so don't tag us but do visit hellotushy.com slash bar to get 10 percent off plus free shipping you probably won't regret it all right katie should we uh we, we have quite the backlog of of personals the good news 
is you're no longer allowed to submit a personal. The deadline is passed. The bad news, we have a lot to read. We'll do a few more this episode and then get through them hopefully by the end of the uh, the millennium. If you like any of these, email Katie at Barpod Personals, right? Barpod Personals at gmail.com. That's right. First one, Inked and Inquisitive. I'm a 42-year-old single white female but passes for 30s in Atlanta. In the Atlanta area with amazing upper body artwork who likes to get bendy, climb rocks, travel, and debate it out. Currently pursuing my master's in school counseling and mental health counseling from career changes as a pharmacist and yoga teacher. Seeking open-minded men who don't mind to cook and clean. Unicorn searching I know and who have their own shit going on. Heterodox heterosexual in LA looking for contrarian, independent-minded woman who enjoys sweating outdoors, eating very large ribeyes, and a steady diet of bar pots, Sam Harris, Glenn Lowry, and that podcaster guy, Jesse, recently platformed. Is he talking about Noah Berlatsky? Mm-hmm. Must be. 26-year-old gay guy in London looking for an individual who's a man, who's his own man for cuddling, watching movies, listening to music, dabbling in bouts of sexual depravity, and dismantling Britain's authoritarian hate speech laws together. I also have great tits, i.e. muscular pits, in case that's a bonus. Mus- it sounded like you said muscular pits. I <laughs> muscular pits. Oh, I, I think pecs. I did. Muscular pecs. <laughs> yes. Pits. Hello, future mates or murderers. I decided to become a patron of the bar pod specifically so I could send in a personal ad. If that doesn't tell you everything you need to know about me, my financial priorities, and my dating tactics, well, no, I also flirt mainly through light bullying tactics. Hence why I like Katie and Jesse so much. 26-year-old straight female living in Durham, North Carolina. If hating Trump and liking tattoos make up most of your personality, don't waste my fucking time. It actually says liking tacos. What did I say? Tattoos. Oh, if hating Trump and liking tacos make up most of your personality, don't waste my fucking time. All dressed bagel lover. Uh oh, did you tell all your friends that you have a cute 27 year old girlfriend who lives in Canada and once a month you have to hide her in your basement eating Cheetos in the dark to pretend you went to Montreal to visit her? Well, look no further. This center left atheist enjoys culturally appropriating recipes, languages, and music for personal consumption and is looking for a guy to feed cabbage and compliment her artwork. The quick fix up. How bar pod personals can fix my social ills by finding me a date. Oh, thanks for the book reference. <laughs> adult human female seeks human adult male to eventually exchange our large and small gametes and live happily ever after. London based 35 likes cats, crickets, cocktails and conversation. I'm an economist, PhD and opera singer. And I've also got great tits to boot. Again, this is a British person. So tits over there means birds. <laughs> that was me just editorializing. Intellectual dork web, 41-year-old woman, PhD, happily married, seeks smart, interesting, heterodox thinker for email chat friendship only. Likes philosophy, music, university challenge, not sure what that is, overthinking gossip girl, one tree hill, and stuff like that. Dislikes, not having enough smart, funny friends with whom I can talk freely about my literally violent opinions. Do you find you no longer even know for sure if you're quoting classic symptoms or just saying words? If so, we might get along platonically. Kansas City area lesbians looking for fun special guest star for an NSA threesome. No strings attached. Mm. No thing, no strings attached threesome. Hi, Barpod listeners. My wife and I are creating this ad together. We are two adventurous, horny cis women who live just outside of Kansas City. We're interested in a similar-minded cis lesbian bi woman who might want to have fun with us. 34 and 41, we're mostly seeking casual sex, but if friendship happens along the way, would be, we would be open to that too. We're determined to prove Katie wrong and that there are at least three whole lesbians in just the Kansas City area alone. If this appeals to you, we hope we can hear from you. All right. How about one more? Yeah. Swinging across the aisle. 
We are a lefty vegan couple. A lot of couples that today. We are a lefty vegan couple, straight man and bisexual woman in our mid-20s living in the San Francisco Bay Area. We are seeking a hot couple or moderately attractive single woman of any political persuasion for friendship in steamy makeout sessions if it goes there. Like likes, park picnics, green tea, hiking, psychology, fried tofu, bulldogs, playing devil's advocate, and tomatoes, just her. Dislikes, social media, IPAs, audiobooks, California fire season, air quality, loud music, cargo shorts, and tomatoes, just him. Okay, that out of the way, we got to do housekeeping. Katie, go for it. No, I think this is your job. Ah, uh, we are a podcast. <laughs> Blocked reported podcast at gmail.com. You can reach out to us, reddit.com slash r slash blocked reported. Um, you can rate and review us on Apple. I thought last time I checked Apple Podcasts, we were down to 4.6, which is Ouch. horrific. That That's a, just a 92 on a test, and we're both high achievers. We need at least a 4.7. You can fix that. Give us a five-star review. Um, what else, Katie? Uh, we sell merch at barpod.org. You can get hoodies. You can get tote bags. You can get mugs. All of your friends will know that you are the fucking coolest person in your swim class. Yeah, yeah. If – um. Yeah, we we sell so much merch it has a major impact on the global economy, so we're trying to be careful. Yeah, get it before the uh, before the shortages. Uh we also have a premium subscriber program at Patreon. This means if you sign up, you get access to an incredible community of more than six thousand people. You also get at least three extra episodes per month. Ad free we've re- ad free and ad free f- free weekly episodes, early access to them. Uh the Bonus episodes we've released this month I think have been really good. They've been on this crazy ivermectin Rolling Stone thing. They've been on the We Spy incident and self-ID. It's just a rollicking good time overall. Yep. Best uh, best deal in media outside of the New York Times crossword. Okay. Katie, should we move on to the second half of this wonderful episode? Let's do it. All right. So uh, there was a Q&A in The Guardian uh, with Judith Butler, the gender theorist and philosopher best known for her book, for their book, Gender Troubles, they identify as non-binary now. There are so many famed feminists who now identify as non-binary. Judith Butler, Eileen Miles, Masha Gessen. It's very interesting. Some might even say a trend. You know, I know this is your thing, Katie, but I just will not indulge your transphobia. They, it's it's look. I'm not a transphobe. I'm an indiephobe. <laughs> so, you know what I realized recently? Go for it. There are no conservative indies. That that can't be true. I uh, how many? Okay, let's go on a hunt. Are there any conservative non-binary? Want, wait, so just be clear. You want to hunt Endies? <laughs> I'm about to get on the fucking glad list. Okay, if there, if anybody listening to this is or knows any conservative non-binary people, please let us know. I am desperate to find if there is even a single conservative NB. There was probably a point where there were no conservative binary trans people. Uh, I doubt that. I highly doubt that. I bet it like when it first when like being trans first went mainstream, but now there's a lot there's a lot of conservative trans people. I I completely don't buy that. I mean, maybe coming out as trans for sure, but why would gender dysphoria have to do with politics? There are plenty of conservative trans people now. I mean, Caitlyn Jenner is running for fucking governor. No, no, I know, but I'm saying when it. I think like for the the, any new thing when it's newly safe to come out. I bet the first people who come out are are liberals. Obviously. If, you know, people, trans people more, might be more likely to be liberal just because liberals are more tolerant of trans people, but there are plenty of examples of conservative trans people. And I don't think gender dysphoria is determines somebody's political orientation. Yeah. I do think, I do think being non-binary is a, is an entirely liberal or leftist phenomenon. Well, if you disagree, if you're a conservative NB, reach out to us. Maybe we'll have you on the podcast because I'm curious what your life is like. Yeah. 
No problem. But I, what, what would your life be like? How are non-binary people's lives any different than binary? <laughs> no, lives? non-binary conservative, and like you have to explain this to all your conservative friends, and yeah, they, you know, they'll probably be more skeptical than your liberal friends who would probably celebrate you. Yeah, that's probably true. Okay, so Judith Butler, um, the non-binary feminist philosopher and gender studies individual, had a interview in The Guardian. It was headlined, Judith Butler, colon, we need to rethink the category of woman. Uh, the interview was conducted by Jules Gleason, who I believe is herself a trans woman. Yeah, I think you're right about that. So, so this article went up Tuesday, September 7th. Pretty quickly, part of it was cut out and, and a, and a cryptic editor's note saying it was just updated in light of, of recent events, uh, popped up. As we'll see, this launched a whole sort of angry, outrageous, uh, borderline conspiracy theory. Should I just read the excerpt that was cut out first, do you think? Yes. Okay. Here's a question from Gleason. It seems that some within feminist movements are becoming sympathetic to these far-right campaigns. This year's furor around We Spa in Los Angeles saw an online outrage by transphobes followed by bloody protests organized by the Proud Boys. Can we expect this alliance to continue? Butler answers, It is very appalling and sometimes quite frightening to see how trans-exclusionary feminists have allied with right-wing attacks on gender. The anti-gender ideology movement is not opposing a specific account of gender, but seeking to eradicate gender as a concept or discourse a field of study, an approach to social power. Sometimes they claim that sex alone has scientific standing, but other times they appeal to divine mandates for masculine domination and difference. They don't seem to mind contradicting themselves. I'm realizing this is longer than I thought. She goes on to say that... Wait, you think gender- Judith Butler was a little bit long-winded? <laughs> I know, I didn't... Usually so pithy. So uh, they go on to continue by saying that TERFs and gender-critical feminists are effectively joining with the right-wing anti-gender movement. Um, I'll just read the last paragraph. The anti-gender movement circulates a specter of, quote, gender as a force of destruction, but they never actually read any works in gender studies. Quick and fearful conclusions take the place of considered judgments. Yes, some work on gender is difficult and not everyone can read it. So we I have wonder to why that might be. The- maybe, it's, maybe it's potentially because of the way that you write, Judith Butler. Butler, like, literally once won an award for, like, the worst sentence in, in- can we just read that sentence? Do you have it up? Yeah, I'll, I'll find it. All right. Let me just finish reading this. Okay. Um, yeah, some work on gender is difficult and not everyone can read it. So we have to do better in reaching a broader public. As important as it is, however, to make complex concepts available to a popular audience, it is equally important to encourage intellectual inquiry as part of public life. Unfortunately, we are living in anti-intellectual intellectual times and neo-fascism is becoming more normalized. Um, okay. So let me read this wanna- sentence. Yeah. And and what was the – do you remember the – does it say the award she won for it or they won for it? The Bad Writing Contest. This was in 1998. Judith <laughs> Butler, who we should also say is a professor at uh, UC Berkeley, they write, The move from a structuralist account in which capital is understood to structure social relations in relatively homologous ways to a view of hegemony in which power relations are subject to repetition, convergence, and rearticulation brought the question of (laughs) temporality into the thinking of structure and marked a shift from a form of Althusserian, don't know what that is, theory, that takes structural totalities as theoretical objects to one in which the insights into the contingent possibility of structure inaugurate a renewed conception of hegemony as bound up with the contingent sites and strategies of the rearticulation of power. I need a, a translator for that. Do you have any idea what that means? I've been saying that all along ever since we started this podcast. <laughs> so that's excerpted in a, 
incredibly cathartic classic essay called by Martha Nussbaum in the New Republic from forever ago. I think 99. She's criticizing Butler for being intentionally opaque in her writing, for not really saying anything, for getting basic facts wrong. As Butler explains, there's a version of that paragraph you just read that's like basically true, but it could be phrased so much more clearly. And being sort of uh, obscurantist is a big part of what Butler and some people in her orbit do. They try to sound incredibly deep and important, even when they're saying barely nothing at all. And this has the effect of basically gatekeeping their fields and their thoughts, because normal people can't understand that shit. Well, I think it's – okay, so I'm not sure it's quite gatekeeping. I think it's something more performative than that, which is maybe fitting because Butler stresses the performance of things like gender. Gender. If I can't read a text on quantum mechanics, I can go to school for a few years and I'll eventually be able to understand what it what it means. There's gatekeeping there because like you need to learn what it means. I think there's a lot of people who praise – thinkers like Butler who don't actually know what they're saying but who pretend to because the the prose is so dense and circular and meaningless. So I think it's more like you're you're socialized to be told you're supposed to think Butler is a super important thinker. Right. It just becomes impossible to parse what they're saying. And yes, all fields have their own uh their own language for sure, but this seems designed to obfuscate the meaning of the of whatever they're saying. Yes, I think it's a, a feature, not a bug. So okay. So that that the paragraph I read about the evil turfs and the gender critical feminists and the anti-gender movement. I had not seen that phrase before. The idea of an anti-gender movement. We'll talk about why that's questionable. That was all deleted with very little explanation. This launched a rumor, right, Katie? Indeed. You want me to say what the rumor was? <laughs> yeah. So the rumor here was that, and this was, I think, perpetuated primarily by, or at least was started or furthered by uh Ian Higgins, Owen Higgins, how do you pronounce his name? Owen Higgins, yeah, he's the worst. That's how you pronounce it. Evergreen graduate. Um uh wait, Owen or Ian, what did I say? What is it? Yeah, Owen Higgins said, this from Judith Butler is entirely correct, but at Guardian removed it after transphobic bigots complained. More than two thousand retweets. The idea here is the Guardian published this true thing. Let's let's put that in air quotes for now. This like br- people were treating this as like a brilliant insight into this this alliance between turfs and like Victor Orban fans, but whatever. Um so yeah, the idea is like the Guardian is just Judith Butler is spitting truth, transphobes complain, so the Guardian's like, "Uh-oh, we better appease the transphobes and and pull it down." As and this is Guardian US. This is not the Guardian UK, uh well known for their transphobic bias. Yeah, it um that that storyline always made about as much sense as like when when the lefty writer Nathan Robinson, he said that he lost his Guardian gig for criticizing uh, Israel. Israel. Yeah. yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, the Guardian's super afraid to criticize Israel. So we found out that what happened here was a little bit more complicated, right? Right. So basically um, – Okay. So the, the question was about the We Spy incident. This was an incident. We talked about it on a patrons only episode. It was treated by many in media, including the Guardian, uh, in the US as likely a hoax. It was not a hoax. A sex offender is now alleged in a police report. There, there were four complainants and, uh, who are women and one who was a girl. So five women, five people complained that this person, uh, had their penis out and it was semi erect and they were around four women and a girl. These were this at a was, spa at a spa in LA, the Wee Spa. This was a registered sex offender. This so this very much appears like a sex crime was committed. Although of course this person's innocent until proven guilty. The Guardian, after this news came out, published this 
Q&A exchange in which this was treated as likely a hoax and a sign of this evil gender critical right wing alliance. And it linked to a story by the guardian, which last time I checked remarkably has still not been updated, which treated this as, as probably a hoax. Right. So the initially after the guardian took out this question and answer, they had a very opaque correction The correction has been, has since been amended. And so if you go to the page now, it says one section of the Q&A was removed by editors because the interview and preparation of the article for publication occurred before new facts emerged regarding an incident at Wee Spa in Los Angeles. The consequent lack of reference in the relevant question to this development in which the arrest was made for an alleged indecent exposure to the spa risked misleading readers. And for that reason, the section was removed. This footnote was expanded on 9 September 2021 to provide a fuller explanation. There is, however, I should note, there's no actual link to the Wii Spot, the coverage of the Wii Spot incident there in the correction to the Guardian's coverage or anyone else's. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So, ba- so basically the Guardian, the editors realized it looked really bad to present the Q&A in this way, given that a four women and a, there was an active indecent exposure, uh, alleged indecent exposure. And Butler and Gleason are talking about this, like it's just some right wing conspiracy theory. Um, Jezebel subsequently posted an article where Gleason was negotiating with her editors. The editor said, we can keep the question and answer if we include a correction about this alleged sex crime having occurring. Gleason said, no, I don't want to include that correction. So the editors at that point, they took the Q&A out. If you search Guardian and censorship, you will see countless people, including some people like Owen Higgins with big platforms, claiming the Guardian just immediately bowed to transphobic pressure and censored Judith Butler's vital insights when, in fact, the author of the Q&A had a chance to keep that up but didn't want to post a correction. Yeah. Can you explain that a little bit better? How do we know this? We know this because Jules Gleason told Jezebel this. Uh, Jules Gleason said, the Guardian, we talked about how to address the situation and the Guardian said, we'll add a correction, noting that like charges have been filed. And, uh, presumably that's what they would note. Jules Gleason did not like the idea of, you know, presenting a, it's, it's tricky. I don't. Jules some- Gleason, like you're hedging, Jules Gleason didn't want people to think about the Wee Spot incident in the context of trans people. Yeah, and I, well, I was hedging because I think there's some, not that it matters, but there is some uncertainty over the alleged, uh, dick puller out or dick, uh, semi haver. You called it a semi or a havesy? Havesy. A havesy. It's, I think it's a semi, but whatever they had, I, I, I think they told Andy no, they identify as trans. They, they were registered as a sex offender from being male forever ago. So, uh, but yes, Jules Gleason did not want that included. Right. So basically what happened, Andy No broke open the story. He did actual reporting, found out this was not a hoax, unlike what The Guardian and other outlets like Slate uh, said, and uh, and interviewed this person. And this person said, like, I'm a trans woman and, and I'm the victim of, of transphobic bigotry. So so, so basically what, what the, the narrative has, has changed to like, Okay, it's so maybe it wasn't a hoax, but now this isn't a trans woman. Yeah, it's like very it, – it's a messy situation. It's convenient. But, but Gleason can't have it both ways. You can't like – first of all, I don't understand why Gleason gets the final say over how the story's corrected. I talked to someone else who's written for The Guardian and said that uh, she had a correction made against her will, which is going to happen sometimes. I, I When I was an editor, I would I, – I, writers don't get final say about when corrections occur. No, absolutely not. So th- th- this was sort of a ridiculous outrage story because what happened is very far from the Guardian censoring this. Now, I do think they did a horrible job. You can't nuke a bunch of an interview and then offer such an opaque explanation, right? 
Right. And the explanation, the correction as it stands now, I think is fine, other than the fact that they don't link to Weespa, but that should have been the correction, the initial correction. It shouldn't have been opaque. Yeah. Uh, but this, this was just, just an example of just like the endless outrage cycle. I always used to associate like outrage bullshit with the right more and more like every day there's a new story on the left of outrage that is just not what it seems that the first draft of the story is always false. Owen Higgins still has his viral, semi-viral, you know, 2000 plus retweets tweet up continuing to spread the idea that this was just them bowing to transphobia rather than a situation that was much more complicated and where Gleason's, you know, at the end of the day decided not to, I don't know why she was allowed to decide this, but she decided there'd be no correction and that's why they pulled the, uh, the text. Um, so what did you, you think of, I guess we've already tipped our hand on this, but what do you think of Butler's theory itself? That we need to rethink the category of women? <laughs> no. I, I think if Judith Butler wants to re- rethink the category of women, that's fine. I don't think we should re- uh, rethink the category of female. What do you think of this idea of the, um, the, 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 uh, you see a lot about this, the idea of like a turf right wing alliance. This is ridiculous. There have been, Edge cases where some group like, like the Women's Liberation Front will align with a group like the Heritage Foundation on some specific piece of legislation, but the idea that. And, and I don't think they even, they, wasn't it just they sent people to appear yeah, on a panel? On a panel. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. This idea that there are like gender critical feminists aligning with Proud Boys and people who, you know, campaign to end access to abortion and stuff like that. It's just, I'm sure there are edge cases where this happens, but this is not, this is not a real thing that's happening. They're not aligning with QAnon. They're not aligning with Proud Boys. These are feminists. There's been this like real pushing of basically a conspiracy theory that that the alliance between gender critical feminists and TERFs and the right is like a big and growing problem. It's not. It's it's as far as I can tell, it is really made up and drawn from cherry picked examples. Um I guess we should like technically define what a GC feminist is, right? Yeah, sure. Go for it. I, gender critical in this context just means uh I to me Gender critical really means they're critical of gender identity, of the idea that we have like uh, – it's usually treated as an innate, an eternal sense of feeling male or female. What gender critical feminists will say is like what does it mean to feel female? How can you define that without relying on stereotypes? It's sort of like a like a little ache in the throat sometimes, like a little pickle. <laughs> yeah. Um, and – now there are among them, there are particularly like rad femmes who are gender abolitionists because they view gender as a harmful influence on society that like forces, you know, tells little girls they have to be nurturing or little boys they have to be tough and physically violent. Yeah. The, the gender roles is the issue. It's, I think it's less complicated when you sort of think of it as gender roles. Yeah. That's like tangible in a way. Butler's claim that. There's an alliance, a left-right alliance of people who want to eliminate even discussing gender as a concept is like maybe the wrongest thing I've read in quite some time because no gender critical feminists want to like, as far as I know, outlaw gender studies or outlaw talk of gender. I, I've never seen anything suggesting that. No, I haven't either. And in fact, a lot of them are involved in this, like gender studies evolved from women's studies. There's, and Judith Butler was one of these women's studies people until everything sort of shifted to be about gender instead of women. It there's is, a lot. Oh, there's just this like real irony of Judith Butler. I mean, they read a book called Gender Trouble, but they're known as a feminist or were known as a feminist. And so this, this like, there's some real irony of this person attacking women, calling women complicit in fascism for standing up for what they believe in. And what they believe in is protecting women's rights in women's spaces. Martha Nussbaum's review, uh, takedown of Butler. She gave a lot of examples where it really seemed like Butler had no idea what she was talking about on specific subjects, uh, such as the First Amendment. Um, reading this 
interview, I, it seemed like Butler just didn't even understand the basic battle lines. And none of this is to say gender critical feminists are right. I do think they should be allowed to make their arguments because their arguments are, are held by most of society usually or their views are. Just the misunderstanding of the inability to even accurately describe your opponent's beliefs is like – it makes for a very dumb public intellectual sphere, I think. It really does. Um, so I have a little bit of background on the Butler story. So this is part of a series called Gender Now. And last spring, I got an email from uh, my editor at The Guardian, and she told me that they were going to be launching this series about gender. They wanted to do a real, like, for The Guardian in the U.S., wanted to have basically a series of Q&As, some with people, and she mentioned Judith Butler, um, and then she invited me. She said, you know, she was like, she said, like, keep this on the fucking down low, because we're not sure if we can get this, if we can get this pushed through. There's obviously going to be a lot of pushback, especially from the staff. Apparently, I didn't make the cut because that was the last I heard from her. Um, but this is supposed to be a series where they're going to be talking about difficult issues and have a diversity of opinion. Um, so far, the only one that has been published is, is the Butler interview. I will be curious to see if the rest get published. Who knows if they will because the backlash for this one probably caused some headaches. Um, but yeah, didn't make the cut. I thought I saw someone say online that the, the, like the landing page is now basically dead if you go there. Do you know if that's true? That's not true. Okay. I'm on, I'm on the page right now. Yeah, that's that was not true. Well, I'm sure they'll do. I can see the UK Guardian doing like actually a back and forth of some sort. The US Guardian staffers are so opposed to any conversation on this issue. I think it's gonna be tougher. And that's why I think I got cut. <laughs> that's so annoying. You would you, anything you would have produced would have been a million times better than anything Judith Butler has to say on this. Frankly, maybe uh, Jules Gleason could email or could uh, interview me for the next one. It's just interesting because, like, frankly, I'm not going to read Gender Troubles. Like, I've seen enough about the way Butler distorts stuff to just not trust her, which is my right. I'm not. No one can force me to read Judith Butler. Trust them. But the the idea of performativity of like you perform the gender role of being woman, you would think Butler has something more interesting to say about sort of like the gender identity moment and the trans moment of people literally saying, right. I don't want to perform the role of woman. So I'm not a woman, which some people do say explicitly, you would think Butler would have like a more cutting insight into that or a critique of it. Even it seems like she's just being going along with the tide in a way that um. I think it's boring. It'd be boring. You know, boring isn't the worst thing in the world. Some correct opinions are boring, but I just, what I read in their interview is literally, you could have gotten that from any like impassioned tweet storm or Tumblr page, frankly. It's very surface level analysis. Yeah. Anything else on this, Jesse? No, that's it. Um, yeah, I, uh, I'll, I'll try to read more Butler. People are going to be mad that I criticize them without reading them, but check out the Martha Nussbaum, uh, essay. I just think Nussbaum has them dead to rights. If people are interested in the We Spot controversy, check out the Patreon. We, uh, we put on an episode specifically about that, and I think it's a good one. It's our only good episode, so you should pay for it. This has been Blocked and Reported. I'm Jesse Single, and remember, why do we have a book called Gender Troubles, but not a single book called Gamer Troubles? And I'm Katie Herzog, and also remember, the move from a structuralist account in which capital is understood to structure social relations in a relatively homologous ways to a view of hegemony, which uh, I just ran out of breath. <laughs>